All right, another episode of Spilling Buckets. Naod is back to join me. Naod, I uh, I stayed up East Coast time watching that Pelicans Blazers game. I've started to grow this affinity for the Pelicans. Big Brandon Ingram fan, uh, big Zion fan, and I was pretty distraught watching the end of that game. But at the same time, rooting against Dame is almost impossible, so I wasn't too upset. But I was more so just concerned about the late game decisions that the Pelicans made. Of course, Ingram missed both free throws, which kind of cost them. But the decision to go to Nikhil Alexander Walker, even if he was the secondary play, even if he was a secondary option on that inbound play, is just concerning to me. Yeah, they. You know, I I was really close to clicking off that game because I thought, you know, it was already over. And and I didn't watch all of that game, but I did catch the second half. I was, I had just gotten home and I saw that and I was like, man, the Pelicans, it was looking like more of a bad loss on the part of the Blazers. But um, that's the kind of loss that makes me question if the Pelicans are ready to be a playoff team. And that's like, that's the type of team that usually gets pegged with the year away label. Um, You know, yeah, that inbounds late in the game, you know, gave the Blazers a chance. And then the foul, you know, like they fouled them too right after that. So there was another error right there. And, you know, Ingram's late, you know, two misses at the line and he's a pretty sure free throw shooter. So um, it was an epic collapse, but I think, I think for the most part, most people are focusing on what the Blazers did right. And I think rightfully so. I think the Blazers, you know, they do have some defensive issues. You know, the Pelicans were upwards of what 125 points I want to say 124 to 125 so that you know that is a concern but late in a game if the Blazers are within striking distance they are a team to be reckoned with just because Dame is going to make sure his team gets a quality shot down the stretch and um, it was an entertaining game but if I'm walking away from that game and I'm the Pelicans you know I'm thinking is there perhaps some moves we can make to bolster not necessarily bolster the team entirely but you know that's always the goal but in those specific situations down the stretch because I like BI but there's not anyone else on that team that I look at as like a closer and when I look at Zion it's similar to Giannis I feel like there's going to be questions eventually when the Pelicans become a playoff team does Giannis have the guy I mean does uh, sorry does Zion have the guys he can give the ball to down the stretch and if you kind of crowd BI I think they need one more kind of creator kind of shot maker and maybe Alexander Walker was in because they're trying to kind of mold him into that guy. So we'll see. No, a lot of interesting thoughts there to your point about BI. It seems like you mentioned, yeah, late in games, he'll get crowded and he'll have trouble getting by guys and kind of take long contested twos. As you mentioned though, he's an 88% free throw shooter. Him missing two there is unlikely, but I guess that can happen for me with the Pelicans. It almost seems like not just with talent, but that they almost need a leader on the floor to guide these young guys through those moments. And I don't think, I mean, I, I know that Bledsoe and Adams are not necessarily those guys. And, and as you mentioned, late in games, they don't really have, obviously Zion has the ability to, to get, to get to the rim, but they don't have that secondary guard. Bledsoe is not that guy. And as good as Lonzo ball's been, who we can get to, he's not necessarily creating his own points. He's become more of a catch and shoot three guy at this point. He seems hesitant to go to the rim. He's up to 70% of the line, but still seems hesitant. So to me, you look at the Pelicans, right? And they have these two great players and they're five, six games under 500. You look at some of the other teams, like a team like Memphis. And I asked myself, how, how come they have a better record? Do you think it's coaching? Do you think it's leadership? Um, do you think that the Pelicans are missing something? What do you think it is? Yeah, so with the Pelicans, I've always kind of been critical of uh, just their team setup. Uh, I, I've always felt that they didn't maximize. I mean, I mean, not maximize, but they didn't get the right. The roster construction isn't set up in a way that is going to bring the best out of Zion and BI. And to their credit, those guys are still having great seasons. But I think it's in those situations where they play some of the better teams in the NBA that it's going to get exposed. You know, those veteran teams that are, understand how to rotate and, you know, bump down and who to help off of. Like, those are the things you get, you know, with time in the NBA. So when I see the Blazers beating them down the stretch, it isn't because the Blazers are necessarily, you know, world beaters defensively. It's the Blazers understand which guys to rotate off of, which guys you take bets with down the stretch trying to beat you. And I mean, Bledsoe did knock down a huge shot down the stretch. But it's like one of those shots where it's like, as the defense, you'll take it. It's like a win. Like, we'll live with Eric Bledsoe beating us with that type of shot. And 
more often than not, I don't think that bodes well for New Orleans. Um, and I'm not saying that New Orleans needs to like, you know, do anything drastic. I mean, they are seventh offensively, so they're, they're able to put up points. Surprisingly, Stan Van Gundy hasn't gotten them to the place they need to be defensively. And they have an issue, you know, defending the three-point line. And part of that seems to be, you know, they haven't modernized their approach, right? A lot of these, you know, guys like Tibbs when he was in Minnesota and Stan Van Gundy kind of from that, you know, 2000s era, they're still, their defenses are still predicated on limiting, getting to the paint, which, you know, the paint is still very important, but we see it with coach Bud in Milwaukee. You know, when you limit the paint as much as you do and overhelp in certain situations, especially one pass away, you give up clean looks from behind the three point line. And in today's NBA, that's just a recipe for disaster. If you catch a team that is able to knock those shots down. You're right. I mean, the, if you watch the Pelicans, they give up wide open threes on, on most possessions. So we'll see what happens there. I wanted to get a little bit to Lonzo Ball while we're on New Orleans. There was talk of him being moved a few months ago. That's quieted down a little bit. And maybe it was some of the Lamelo success that put him under the radar. But Lonzo has been really good for them. And I'm not saying he's a third piece or third option. He's a different type of player. He's become very good outside, uh, out, very good from outside overall. Um, had 16 assists, I believe, in that game. So he's growing. I just think for New Orleans, as you mentioned, they need some other pieces. But are you are you buying an Alonzo Ball as a as a solid starting point guard or number or kind of off guard in this league? You, Alonzo Ball is a really interesting player because I've always thought that his expectations when he got to the league have kind of made people quick to peg him as someone who isn't where he needs to be. But I mean, he's 23 years old. And, you know, his shooting form and, you know, his shot mechanics were, you know, those were the biggest question marks coming into the league. Um, those are still question marks to this day, but they've definitely improved. Um, his shooting efficiency has gone up, which, you know, in today's NBA is probably the most important skill to have. But, you know, shooting, you know, outside of shooting, Lonzo Ball is pretty good at everything else. You know, he rebounds the ball. He has this positional size you're looking for. He's able to facilitate. Um, on a Pelicans team that ranks 28th defensively, he's one of their actually more capable defenders. So I'm not sure if you flip Lonzo Ball for, you know, more of an offensive piece, you know, what does that do to the team's defense? Does that put them, you know, as the worst in the league, you know, situation like the Kings have right now. So um, I think he does bring value to the Pelicans. And I think if the Pelicans were to dangle him in trade talks, they could get a pretty good return considering he was the number two overall pick not too long ago. He's still 23. There's still upside there. Um, he's a little bit of a different player than his brother, but I think, you know, and I heard this interesting take, but maybe LaMelo Ball's kind of rapid ascension as a rookie has kind of lit a fire under Lonzo Ball because it's like my little brother's taking over. I just can't be the guy that, you know, flat lines and plateaus. So for a while, it felt like Lonzo Ball, kind of like what people were saying about Ben Simmons, which I think is a little overblown, but they were saying he was kind of, flatlining like not getting much better but it feels like this year Lonzo Ball is back on the upward trajectory so if I'm the Pelicans um, I know he's gonna have to get paid soon um, I think you take the chance and pay him only because I think you can get a market-friendly deal because he's not blowing you away statistically he still impacts the game and if you know that doesn't work out in the long run at his age with you know the potential upside down the line he's still a movable asset so you can get him on a team-friendly deal I think you do it I agree. And I think he's exactly what you want in this league right now. We see the popularity and the appetite for these off ball secondary guards, and especially someone that could compete defensively on a nightly basis. I think what New Orleans is missing, as I mentioned earlier, is just a veteran leader, even a guy, obviously they weren't going to go for him. It didn't make sense this season, but even a guy like PJ Tucker, who could change a locker room and kind of change the attitude there. I wanted to quickly just move over to the Blazers side. I know we're spending a lot of time on this game, but just what Dame Lillard's been able to do in clutch time. They showed his numbers before that final possession. I think it was 60% from three, 50 from the field, 100% from the line. Just insane numbers. And then in the press conference, which was a pretty much, it was an all-time interview after the game on TNT, um, just talking about how he kind of just loosens up in those situations and he finds that everyone gets tighter. Um, if we could just talk about Nao, Dame Lillard overall, but really in those, in those late-game situations. Yeah, I really enjoy that interview, honestly, because the authenticity, I, I alluded yeah. to that on Twitter. Um, you don't see a lot of guys that really 
say things like that. And he's very articulate as well. And I like that he mentioned that when people take a step back in those situations that he goes forward and really the proof, you know, it's, it's just true. You can just see it on the floor, right? The eye test alone proves it. You just, you know, alluded to the statistics to back it up as well. Um, Dame is a, you know, he's a big time player down the stretch. And, you know, I think the Blazers are always getting five to seven extra wins that they probably wouldn't have just off the fact that they have Dame on their squad. Cause he, he hits a few game winners. It feels like every season. Um, and Dame, you know, there's always going to be the talk about whether he's maximizing, you know, his potential and his opportunities in a small market like Portland, where it's a little bit harder to convince others to come and join you. But, you know, he has became kind of a staple of that city, you know, that community. Um, I really like Dame in Portland. I don't know how, I don't know what the chances of them ever winning a championship are with him there. I think there's always going to be a fair question about whether him and uh, CJ McCollum can be a one-two punch that leads you to the promised land. But man, they're, they're probably one of the more entertaining teams to watch on a nightly basis. Um, I really enjoy watching the Blazers. Um, I do have questions about them similar to new Orleans on the defensive end, but um, they're a really exciting team to watch and Dame keeps it real. And I think as NBA fans, you can, you know, you've got to respect that. I think Dame's got to be one of the most well-liked, if not the most well-liked player in this league, as you mentioned, just how real and authentic he is after these games. Uh, there's nothing not to like that spin into the three he hit later in that game on the right wing was, was special. Um, this brings me to some MVP talk, which I know, it feels like this year nailed. I don't know if you agree, but it feels like there's more MVP talk than ever. I feel like we've been talking about this since day one of the season. It's like the joke of the season ends this year. And it's like, all right, who's next year's MVP. Everyone's very into this, but it is intriguing. And I know you're a big Harden fan. Um, nailed. Are you, are you a Houston Rockets fan growing up just to, so you grew up as a Rockets fan. Okay. So Harden last night puts up 40, 10 and 15. He's been playing 40 minutes a night, doesn't miss a game. He's been without Kyrie a few times, without Durant for pretty much the majority of his tenure there. I'm starting to buy into the fact that he should be the favorite right now to win this award. I think they're 21 or 22 and seven with him. Um, I know we did this last time, but let's hear the James Harden MVP case update. Well, yeah, I think his MVP case has strengthened um, partially because Joel Embiid went down, obviously, which was, you know, unfortunate. But I had Joel Embiid probably just just a, a, a spot ahead of James Harden. I thought um, LeBron and the Lakers were kind of, you know, playing around 500 ball, which, you know, I thought bring him down a little bit. He was trending down a bit for me on my personal list. But for, for the main reason I have James Harden kind of ascending and, you know, taking over that number one spot, if he hasn't already, um, is because he is currently – orchestrating the num the most efficient offense ever right and as much as people want to say that they're how far away they are defensively they're also further ahead than most teams offensively especially when you compare how he's the the level the nets are playing offensively compared to the level the other teams and are the mvp candidates other teams are playing offensively if that makes sense he's got them playing at a really high level um and it really hasn't matter who's been in the lineup right KD has played one game over this last 15 game stretch where they're 14 and one uh, Kyrie Irving has been in and out a little bit, but he's been there for the most part. But I think even Kyrie Irving, who people have always pegged as a guy that you kind of have to keep happy, get him his touches, uh, make sure he's involved, but don't expect them to, you know, play, make and keep everybody else involved and make those other guys better. James Harden has kind of simultaneously, you know, did his part, and kept everybody else involved while getting Kyrie Irving his looks and him comfortable in an offense. And it almost feels like Kyrie and James Harden have been playing together for like three years, even though it's been closer to like two months. So um, the transition has been seamless. Um, I just think he's a brilliant offensive player. He's honestly just a genius, a savant. I think he's the best offensive player in basketball. With that being said, I'm not going to dismiss the case, you know, that Jokic, Dame, who we just talked about, LeBron, and even Embiid have. And lately Giannis has been, really, you know, playing well as well. And the Bucks are, you know, climbing up the standings. Uh, they're pretty close to that one spot as well. So I think for James Harden and for Embiid and for Giannis, um, out of the three of them, I think getting the number one seed in the East, right, is going to be the most important thing. Because usually it feels like there's a team up there, like whether it be the 15 Hawks or even this year's Jazz, where it's a collective team effort that brings those teams 
uh, up so high in the standings. But this year in the East, with KD missing so much time, it's Harden, Embiid, and Giannis, the three best players in the Eastern Conference that have suited up, that have their teams in the top three spots. So I think the race for that number one seed ultimately might dictate um, who takes home the MVP unless somebody in the West really heats up like Dame Jokic or maybe even LeBron. So for Giannis, it's as if, I mean, he, because he's won the back-to-backs, he has to be putting up numbers we've never seen before. And frankly, over the last few weeks, he, he somewhat is. So it'll be difficult for him. I feel like for Harden, the media is holding against him how he left Houston. And I don't personally think that should have an impact. I think that we're measuring these players for their on floor performance and their impact on a team. And just because he missed one or two games in Houston and maybe dogged it for two games, he still had a few games in Houston, especially the first game against Portland, where I believe he put up over 40 points. He had the typical Harden game. Okay. So he, he might've dogged it for two games. I mean, there's no one else playing 40 minutes a night playing every night. So that makes up for that. So I don't think that should be part of the equation here. And also he, he turns players that are completely irrelevant into relevant pieces that fans are all giddy about, like Claxton and Bruce Brown. And even Shamit was struggling before Harden got there, and he's been able to get him open look. So obviously part of the MVP equation is the impact you have on your teammates. And Harden is averaging the most assists in the league. You could argue right now that he's the best distributor in the league. He's been efficient. Frankly, he's playing the best basketball of his career. So... I think if the Nets are the number one seed and the fact that it looks like Durant's going to be out for a pretty extended period of time, I think this Harden MVP talk is going to become a lot more legitimate. So I'm curious to see what happens there. As far as the Nets and Harden, Nao, do you, obviously Harden, there's been frustrations with him in the postseason. That's been the one knock on him throughout his career. Do you think that this season in the playoffs, we're going to see a more similar Harden, what we've seen throughout his regular season career? Um, well, there's two there's two reasons I'm optimistic and I would buy his stock this year for the postseason. One being the talent around him, which we just talked about. And, you know, even those guys that he's elevating, I think that will serve them well come to, you know, come postseason time. Those guys will be playing confident. Um, but Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are two of probably the five best bailout options you could have as a distributor in the NBA, right? If James Harden is not able to create something for someone, oh, just throw it to KD, you know, the best, a Swiss Army knife, best bailout in basketball, or Kyrie Irving, one of the more creative, one of the most creative scorers we've ever seen. So uh, having those two guys will kind of give him an insurance policy that he's never had. Um, Chris Paul is probably the best teammate he played with, an advanced Chris Paul, in, at least in age, is probably the best teammate he had in Houston. I mean, I like Chris Paul, but he's just not Kevin Durant. Um, and the second reason I'm really, you know, I really like Harden's shot is because he's in the Eastern Conference. I'll keep it real. I think he'll have a couple rounds where he'll play opponents that he will be comfortable against. Um, you know, the West has always been, at least in recent memory, the superior conference. But now, you know, if James Harden can kind of establish a rhythm in the first two rounds, um, and, you know, they'll probably see somebody tough in the semis and the conference finals. But um, with KD and Kyrie alongside him, you know, James Harden has been religiously double teamed in the postseason, right? It's always been get the ball out of his hands and we'll live with anybody else, you know, trying to make a play, trying to knock down a shot. But we just talked about it. You know, the Nets are the most efficient offense ever. And that's largely in part because they're one of the most efficient shooting teams we've ever seen. You know, Joe Harris knocks down 50% of his threes on nearly seven attempts. Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant obviously can knock down the long ball, sham it. They've got a couple of guys that catch lobs at the rim. Jeff Green has been a revelation. So they've got multiple guys offensively. So it's going to be harder than it has in the past to double and blitz and shade a guy Harden's way. So he'll see a lot more one-on-one coverage and he'll have teammates that can uh, kind of step up. And even in the minutes where he's off the floor, where the Rockets have been, where the Rockets used to get outplayed, you know, the Nets will be able to hold their own, if not increase leads. So I like his chances of kind of getting that monkey off his back. Yeah, that's the main point that I, I've been making myself too, is that when Harden was out in, in, in previous seasons in the playoffs, when he was getting his few minutes of rest, there was high concern about keeping the game in control. But now when he's out of the game, you're going to have at least one of Kyrie or Durant on the floor. So that's not as large of a concern. I'm interested to see what happens. Obviously, the ring is the one thing that's kind of 
stalling his legacy. So I'm excited to see what Harden can do in the postseason. I hope the Nets can be healthy, and I hope we can see this similar version of what we're watching right now because it's beautiful basketball from James Harden. Let's get to his former team, uh, your team, the Houston Rockets. So I've been getting made fun of on Twitter for talking about this KPHA and Wood future that I'm excited about in Houston. I'm, I'm being told to slow down a little bit. But what I don't understand is I know he had the off-the-court issues in Cleveland, but at 20 years old, I would have thought there was a larger market for this guy. I've been sitting here thinking, watching some of these teams like the Celtics that, are, that seem like they are missing a piece I'm shocked that he didn't go to a contender, that, that there wasn't more of a market for KPJ. Yeah, I think with KPJ, you know, the off-court concerns are, are legitimate because he had those same concerns at USC. Um, it's why he was suspended indefinitely, ultimately, and didn't get to finish the season there. But KPJ was <clears throat> large, uh, for the most part, coming out of college, looked at as a top 10 pick, right? And due to, you know, whatever happened at USC, um, his conduct issues, he fell to 30th. Um, so that right there was already Cleveland getting a steal in terms of where he fell. And then, of course, Cleveland had to sell on him even lower because, you know, what for whatever reason, he didn't work out there and um, they just wanted to get him out of that locker room, frankly. So now Houston gets a player who, you know, is top 10 talent for pretty much nothing. Um, so I don't think it's, you know, I don't think you're crazy to really see that as a big pickup, especially because, in the midst of this 18-game losing streak, Houston is now – they either have the second or third-worst record in basketball right now. So that in itself is important because the Rockets right now, they have a draft pick this year that is top four protected. So if it falls out of the top four, it would go to Oklahoma City as a part of that Westbrook-Chris Paul trade. But if it stays in the top four, you're talking about a loaded 2021 class with players that can really alter kind of the timeline of your rebuild. Like you can grab someone like Cade Cunningham – you might be competitive sooner than you think who has been compared to Luka Doncic recently um, in terms of who, the player he resembles the most in the NBA. So if you get a future of Cade, KPJ and Christian Wood, or even someone like Evan Mobley or one of these younger prospects, who I'm going to really look into because um, as a Rockets fan, we haven't had a lottery pick in almost a decade. So um, I'm going to look at these prospects, but if you get any of those guys and put them next to those two, and the Rockets are sellers at the deadline, so expect to see some of these veterans like Oladipo. Tucker went by it. Tucker, uh, Tucker got sent to the Bucks yesterday. We're going to see more guys getting out. It's just going to clear up more space and opportunity uh, for these younger guys to get more reps and fully blossom. So um, the Rockets are in a rebuild, and I do feel for Steven Silas, who kind of got you know thrown this kind of mess. But he's been he's been really good at you know uh, keeping the guys you know working and. Um, getting them keeping their head on straight in this you know amidst all this chaos but um, the future's bright in Houston it just might take a while to see it but you're one of the people that sees it early so props to you no I've been enjoying the Rockets which sounds laughable considering I think they're two games away from tying the the longest losing streak in NBA history at 20 um, but to your point I'm excited about KPJ what frustrates me is and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is I didn't understand it at the time. I understand it even less now is can you try to explain the Oladipo Levert move? Because I feel like Levert is such a larger asset if you were trying to move someone. And if you're trying to rebuild, then he's the one of the perfect guys to rebuild with. Yeah, that, that, that is a question I get a lot from people. And I guess my best way to explain it, not, not saying that I agree with this, but the Houston Rockets didn't view Karis Levert as someone that they wanted it in their long-term plans. They felt that he was kind of outside of the rebuild timeline. Uh, Karis Levert is 27. So they feel like Karis Levert is who he is as a player. Uh, Victor Oladipo isn't part of Houston's long-term plans. I think Houston knows that he knows that. And I think the league knows that. So uh, if Victor Oladipo isn't traded, I'd be shocked um, because he is an expiring contract. And that's another thing. Karis Levert, uh, he has three years on his deal after this one. Victor Oladipo offers you the flexibility because after this year he expires. Um, and that's why I was actually more mad they didn't grab Jared Allen, if I'm going to be honest. I thought Jared Allen should have been um, taken. And I don't know how we could sell the fan base on the fact that Jared Allen doesn't fit the timeline considering he's only 23. But Jared Allen is a restricted free agent at year's end. Um, Cleveland has made it known that they're going to sign him because they view him as part of their future. But I wish the Rockets had done that 
Um, so Houston got an extra first round pick via Cleveland or via is from Milwaukee that Cleveland had. So that ultimately ended up going back to the Bucks anyway. So it's part of a shuffle to just increase assets and um, keep flexibility while adding young players, similar to what Oklahoma city is doing. That's what Houston's been doing. So Houston hasn't been, they weren't, they didn't really love getting back Jared Allen and Karis LeVert, I guess. So, um, and Raphael Stone, the new GM, everybody says he's purely business and that um, he's very serious with these moves. So he has a vision and I guess he just Rockets fans are going to have to trust that he's making the right moves right now. So um, the coming days, we'll see some of those veterans get shipped off. So it'll be interesting. I'm glad you pointed out that Levert's 27. Cause I think a lot of people would assume he's younger, just given the amount of time he spent on the floor, the amount of injuries he's had. So you're saying you'd rather next three, four years have Allen than Levert for Houston. You think that would have been, would have been a better fit? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Jared Allen guy. I think Jared Allen was one of, was the biggest piece the Brooklyn Nets lost in that deal, um, obviously because that's what they're kind of missing right now. But on top of that, I just think Jared Allen, you know, he protects the rim so well. You know, he's able to run the floor. He's athletic. He can switch at, from that five spot and cover a lot of ground. But I guess having Christian Wood there, they felt that, you know, I don't think they view Christian Wood as a four-man, even though I think that would be interesting to have those two on the floor at times together to create some matchup problems for the opposition. Uh, but I guess they, they didn't see either. They saw it as a kind of a redundant pickup or they just saw it as more of a luxury rather than a necessity. So they opted on passing on Jared Allen and just adding another first round pick. But, you know, the odds of you getting another player that good at the end of the first round, uh, I don't know, you know, it's a possibility, yeah. but I don't know if you get a guy as good as Jared Allen, but I guess Jared Allen, again, just like Karis Levert was mainly, a flexibility play like you'd have to sign him to a three or four year deal after this so I guess they just didn't want to make that move I think yeah I think it's been unfortunate for Houston too that Oladipo hasn't been too healthy for them just decreasing his trade value I'm curious to see what they get for him I would imagine it, they're not going to get a first rounder it'll be something in the second round and maybe a different piece but moving on watching the Grizzlies heat game last night the heat are one of the hottest teams in the league and just watching Ja Morant, I've heard a lot of comparisons recently about the younger guards in this league, whether it's Ja or SGA or LaMelo or Trey Young. And Ja, I feel like, doesn't necessarily light up the box score, but there's a lot more to his game than that. I feel like he is an on-the-court leader. He, his teammates seem to completely buy into his, his style of play. And in that game, he goes 5 of 15, but he runs down the court, hits his what he's becoming his patented lefty scoop layup, and ends the game. So to me, I'm trying to understand Ja because he's he's not your traditional point guard. He's not a very good shooter. Um, he's a little bit undersized, but with his leap, he kind of makes up for that. But I've been trying to think of if I like some of these guards more than him. But at the same time, what I constantly tell myself is that this Grizzlies team is pretty much a 500 team. And I know they have some young talent, but I think they're playing above their skill level. And I think that's a lot that has a lot to do with Jaw's leadership. Would you agree? Yeah. With Jaw, Jaw, with Jaw, it's really interesting because I think there's always going to be concerns about his size. I think he can still fill out his frame a little bit. Um, and I guess the biggest concern with that is defensively. Um, you know, last year in that play in game, we saw CJ McCollum kind of call for ball screens to get John Morant. Um, and, you know, he was a rookie last year, so no rookies usually come in as plus defenders anyway. It takes time just to kind of learn the ropes of the NBA, especially defensively. Um, and Jaws, you know, perimeter shooting will always be a legitimate concern. But I think that's more – it's more going to be can Memphis get the right guys around him. Uh, I think John Morant will improve over time. His shooting isn't great. Um, but, you know, you would be missing out on a lot if that's what you focused on because, as you said, John Morant does a lot. I think his ability to get into the paint is just, you know, out of those young guards, I think he might be, he might have the quickest first step and he might be the most explosive at the rim. Um, so he can finish in, you know, in a multitude of ways. But I think what's also nice about John Morant is there aren't many guys that distribute the ball. And I think this is kind of underrated about John Morant. He's actually a really good distributor. He doesn't turn the ball over as, you know, at a higher clip than most guys that are tasked with playmaking. Cause you know, the Grizzlies, you know, Tyus Jones is nice, but they don't have much of a secondary playmaker, on their team. A lot of their guys are, you know, relying on jaw to get them the ball in their spots. So jaw has a lot on his plate at such a young age. So um, 
I think he's definitely, you know, exceeded expectations on from where he was drafted. Um, John Morant, you know, frankly, he's pretty close to an all-star caliber point guard, right? The West is tough, but um, he's doing his part. And like you said, Memphis is yet again in position to potentially snag one of those later, uh, later uh, lower playoff spots. Sorry. Um, so that's impressive to me because I don't see any superstars on Memphis. I don't see any all-star caliber teammates. Um, you could argue that what Dylan Brooks or Valanciunas is probably his most more most consistent teammates help that he has right now. And then a bunch of guys you've probably never even heard of. And I think their coach um, deserves a lot of credit. Uh, most casual NBA fans aren't, you know, familiar with honestly just Memphis Grizzlies basketball as a whole. So um, I got a chance to watch them recently against Washington and I was really impressed um, with how, you know, how they play together collectively. So uh, I enjoyed watching the Grizzlies, and I think John Morant still has, you know, another gear he can hit. So I'm excited to watch his growth. No, Memphis has great ball movement. They play together. And to your point about Ja, even against the Heat, late in the game, obviously we get obsessed with, oh, is Ja going to close this out? What's he going to do in these late-game possessions? He's going to get to the rim. But – he wasn't forcing it. He was trying to find the open man, no matter who it was on the floor, trying to find Brandon Clark down low. So he's not forcing the issue. He's still trying to play smart basketball down the stretch. So I think he, I think he's an extremely high IQ player. And even after the game, he's also not afraid of the moment. And he's super young. He's got a lot of growth. There's a lot of growth to be had. I have to ask this because I have to fit in my SGA comment on each of these episodes because I'm, I'm overly obsessed with him probably, but. Let's just quickly ask you, Naod, SGA or Ja? Man, that's that's tough. Um, I I think right now I'd say uh, SGA is the better player right now. Um, I think that extra year has a lot to do with that as well. Um, SGA has had the you know has had the luxury of playing on two competitive basketball teams that I think most people didn't really expect to be competitive. Part of that was obviously his contributions and the way he stepped up both years. Um, he was picked at the back of the lottery. He wasn't the second overall pick like John Morant. And he stepped up and I thought playing under Doc Rivers and Billy Donovan, you know, two seasoned coaches and getting to play with guys like Lou Williams and Chris Paul and, you know, Patrick Beverly and guys like that, you know, Gallinari, just a number of veterans. I'm sure he's been able to take away a lot from that. And SGA is, you know, he's actually, he's getting his shooting down. He's one of the more efficient scorers in the league right now. So um, just like Memphis, now a lot of teams aren't watching Oklahoma City, especially after Chris Paul left. So they're not getting that, you know, national attention, you know, that you, you, you tend, you don't go, you don't garner that attention when you're a small market team that's rebuilding. So it'll be a while before John Morant, I mean, sorry, uh, SGA is back in the spotlight, but um, I think that'll be a competitive, you know, guard comparison for years to come. I think both guys are ascending. Both guys are leaders of their small market teams. Um, I like SGA right now just because he's a little bit bigger, um, at least in terms of height. Both guys are pretty, you know, thin in their frame, but, um, and SGA can shoot the ball better. Um, but I think John Morant, there's an argument to be had about who has more upside because John Morant, uh, I think, I don't think anyone would argue this is just the more explosive athlete at the rim. SGA is more of a crafty kind of under the rim finisher, but um, I enjoy watching both guys, different styles, but both very effective. Yeah, the reason I bring up SGA so frequently is, I mean, A, I love watching him, but B, I do think he's not necessarily getting the spotlight that he deserves. And to your point, likely because heading into the season, OKC was viewed as a team just gunning for a lottery pick, but they're, they're still in that play-in race. I don't think it'll last because I think they will tank a little bit. Um, I've been so impressed by SGA shooting. I think last time you were on, we were talking about how he had that little hitch in his shot and it wasn't necessarily the smoothest jumper, but against Memphis a few, few days ago came in, was hitting step back sidestep threes um, in the faces of Memphis defenders. And that's a part of his game that I didn't expect to develop so quickly. He's able to be a creative finisher at the rim, get by the guys when he wants. He's got an incredibly long wingspan, but the shooting is what I've been impressed by 50% from the field. 40 from three is what is really impressed me. Um, everyone's probably here, tired of listening to me talk about SGA, but let's, let's move on to Giannis. We talked about him a little bit in the MVP hunt. And last night, it's a pretty big statement win from him. I know Embiid was out, but it was, I think it was a statement win for Giannis because us included talk about his struggles to close out games. And last night, he truly closed out the game. 
scoring seven straight points, hit a three, hit a nice jumper. Um, so he was showing off his stroke a little bit. But what I liked was that he sat down on the court and showed some attitude. I feel like Giannis hasn't always embraced how dominant he can be. Um, earlier this season, he was talking about how LeBron's the best player in the league and all of that. And while that may be true, I don't love that coming out of his mouth after winning two MVPs. So what do you see from Giannis and, and what do you think about kind of the flair that he showed last night? Yeah, I think first off, when you see a guy showing emotion like that and kind of, you know, stirring up if there was a crowd there, you know, I actually heard some booze surprisingly in Philadelphia. Yeah, I think it was. I think there were fake booze. I heard those too. Yeah, they kind of threw those out there when he sat on the court. But and I heard Dwight Howard's post game comments saying he didn't like that. And honestly, I want to see a Philly Milwaukee playoff series. I just think that would be great entertainment. Um, Embiid with his theatrics and obviously just the high level play of both sides. But I think it's great basketball. Um, that we're going to get in the Eastern Conference playoffs this year. And a big reason why is because I like this Milwaukee team, but if they're going to go as far as they're going to go, it's very dependent upon Giannis being the leader and kind of instilling that confidence they need. And if Giannis, you know, walks into every matchup feeling like he's the best player, and this is what kind of talking what you're talking about, about, you know, calling LeBron the quote unquote best player, you know, Giannis, I I did think that comment was a bit unnecessary, um, but at the same time, I just thought he was paying his respects to a legend, but I don't think Giannis, you know, goes into any matchup kind of deferring or kind of taking a step back. He usually goes at guys. And that's what I like about Giannis. Um, I, I think the Drew Holiday pickup will pay huge dividends come postseason time. And hopefully this time around, Chris Middleton is able to perform at the level we know he can. So I like all of that. I think Milwaukee is to me, I actually favor them in a matchup with Philadelphia Uh, which most people don't agree with, but I think they have the pieces to actually defend Philadelphia. So if I'm Philadelphia, I'm trying to avoid that matchup in the bracket. But um, I I do like seeing Giannis shoot the ball and have the confidence to do some things. Personally, the only, you know, gripe I have with is with his utilization. I still think that the Bucks need to try to have him catch the ball closer to the basket, kind of in a post position, kind of facing up attacking from you know five to seven feet away because he's still going to be hard to stop but um, teams are going to set up the wall I think the Bucks know it this time and you know you have a full year to kind of expect that and you you see it coming and so we're going to see can Bud you know do something this time around to put his team in a better position I think having Drew Holiday in place of Eric Bledsoe certainly will help um, but I, I the only thing I want to see is Giannis used a little bit differently but you know, him shooting the ball better from three and knocking down free throws or even the mid-range will obviously help this cause. So um, it's going to be fun to see how Milwaukee does in the postseason this year. I hope Giannis can carry that over. I think for both those teams, Philly and Milwaukee, the struggles do come at the end of games and where they find those points. We know Embiid can kind of score whenever he wants, but we've seen forever that big men can struggle late in games. They'll get doubled frequently. So it's harder to go to them on a regular basis, late in games to me, just talking about a potential Philly Milwaukee series. I feel like the X factor for Philly in this postseason is going to be Tobias Harris. We've seen in the regular season, several times at the end of the games, he's been able to take over. He's got a good mid ridge game. He's improved his finishing. So he's a pretty well-rounded offensive player, but we've seen last year and we've seen other times in the postseason kind of takes a seat back. And I think they're going to need him to really initiate at the end of games, because even though Ben Simmons is clearly their second best player overall, we know that in the end of the games, he can kind of disappear offensively, sit in the dunker spot. So I'm curious to see if Tobias Harris can really take that next step and earn the money that he's being paid in the postseason. You think Tobias Harris has that in him? You know, there is there is a path that I can see Tobias Harris having a big postseason. I think the same questions we have about Chris Middleton are the same questions we have with Tobias Harris. It's like, you're not the best player on the team, but due to the best player's limitations, there's going to be stretches in the game where we need you to kind of take over and carry us to that promised land. So um, Tobias Harris, you know, he's got a good skill set. He's got good positional size. Um, and I've seen a couple games this year where it's feel, it feels like he's, you know, like, like you said, he takes over and finishes off the deal. Um, if I had to put my money on it, I, I don't see the Philadelphia 76ers getting out with that. Um, I'm not, you know, in love with that pick. Uh, does Philly have a chance? Yes. 
can Tobias Harris prove what he's never proven before? Potentially. I think he's always been uh, a more productive player when Doc Rivers has coached him. So we'll see if that has an effect um, on him come playoff time. Um, but with, you know, with the Nets existing and, and me preferring Milwaukee to them, um, I think Philadelphia, and I, I don't know, Philadelphia and Miami, I feel like would be a good matchup too. Uh, I think Philly's more of that third or fourth best team, even though they have the conference's best record as we speak. So um, I'm not going to say Tobias Harris is going to, you know, get Philly through the East, but I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, he's not going to show up and completely just disappear either. Now, you made the point as if, if the Nets exist and they're healthy, then I don't see anyone competing with them in the East. I would give Miami the best shot against them if they can stay healthy, but I'm also concerned about their secondary scoring right now. Just last night, I feel like there's a lot being put on Jimmy Butler, not just to score, but as a facilitator. And Drogic is an older guy. They relied so heavily on him last year, late in games. And I just don't know if Hero is ready for that yet. It's only his second season. Bam is, that's not really his game. I think that Miami could really use a secondary scorer. I'm curious if there are any guys out there at the deadline. Miami seems like they're always interested in making a move and seeing what's out there. I don't know if there is that guy, but do you think that for Miami, for example, to compete with a team like Brooklyn needs another piece to help Jimmy Butler offensively? Well, I think last year's postseason kind of answered that. I think they are a piece away, even though they're very good. Um, and the problem is that piece isn't really available right now, like you kind of just said. Um, I think the dream piece you're looking to add is potentially a Bradley Beal or a Zach Levine, one of these elite scorers that can get it done from all three levels. Um, even though Jimmy Butler, you know, is their best player, I have always felt like he's more comfortable impacting the game in more ways than just scoring. I, I've never thought of Jimmy Butler as – you know, like a thirsty scorer who's going out to give you 30 to 40 points. I've always thought he just impacts the game in so many ways. So I feel like there is a, there is a place or a gap, I should say in the Miami roster where a scorer would just kind of fit right in. Um, and that being said, you know, it seems like the two names that I'm hearing that are realistic, right. I'm not saying these are the best pickups, but are Victor Oladipo who wants to be in Miami and who's on an expiring deal. So it's not, you know, like a long-term commitment if it doesn't pan out. And the other name I've been hearing is Kyle Lowry, who isn't a scorer, but is kind of a third star that might be able to elevate you. Um, so those are two interesting names to monitor around the deadline that I would consider realistic. Then there's the buyout market, of course, because there are some Miami fans who feel like there is concern about size behind Bam Adebayo. Kelly Olynyk's never been an interior defender or a rebounder. That's always been kind of the knock on him. So um, there's definitely some sh- – um, some buyout shopping they're going to be looking to do and they'll probably be, you know, buyers around the deadline if they can find uh, the right deal. But, you know, with Miami, it's interesting because I would think that Jimmy Butler and uh, Bam Adebayo are the only untouchable players, but a lot of people feel like Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson can't be moved. But I think in the right deal, those guys have to go because those are the most valuable assets they really have, you know, them two and maybe Precious Achua, who's just, you know, he's a rookie. But um, I think that if you're going to get an impact player, you got to be willing to part with, you know, some pieces that you have. There's also Kendrick Nunn, who I forgot to mention. So um, whatever, you know, whatever they have, they're going to, besides Jimmy and Bam, who they're probably trying to keep, trying to add that third star alongside, you're going to have to be willing to give up, you know, a number of those other pieces. So, um, it'll be interesting to see how they played out. And then there's also some, you know, contracts like Olenek and Iguodala and things like that. They just got Trevor Ariza, who I thought was, if he's productive, could be a good pickup. We'll see about that one. So uh, they've got a lot of parts, but it'll be interesting because I know Pat Riley, who I think has a few years left in the NBA. You know, this might be kind of his last hurrah. He does not want to go out with, you know, a slightly above average team. He's going to swing for the fences, especially with, uh, Jimmy Butler getting up there in age, his window could be closing. They're going to try to do something in these next few years. And with Giannis off the board, it's maybe grab like a short-term solution like Oladipo until they can pivot and find their long-term answer if a guy like Beal or Levine comes available. I think taking the gamble on Oladipo is probably their best bet. Also, if they're thinking about the future, I don't think they would have to get rid of um, a hero or Duncan Robinson to get him. I think 
obviously you'd have to see how the contract sign up, but I think in a two and none and second round pick package could be enough. That could be even more than they need to send there to get all depot, just given his inability to stay healthy and the fact that he's expiring. So that'd be a good gamble for them to make. I mean, if all depot is healthy, we've seen that he can be a, a terrific offensive player. So we'll see what Miami does. It'd be, it'd be exciting if they can acquire all depot, make the East that much more exciting. We wanted to wrap this up now by just quickly playing a little game here, building our perfect player. We have some categories here. I laid out a few options just to maybe do a draft style. I think we've got eight or 10 categories here and see how this goes. What I noticed when I was filling this out is that I had a lot of repeats for certain departments, which probably just speaks to how talented some of the players in this league are. But if we start with handle, we're going to start with handle building our perfect player. Who are you going with? I think you got to go with Kyrie Irving. Um, I just think, you know, he shows you so much on a daily basis. Every game I watch the Brooklyn Nets, it feels like he's doing something I've never seen before. Um, I know a lot of people, you know, from the previous generation love Allen Iverson. And I've always felt like Kyrie Irving has taken everything Allen Iverson has done and added more attention to detail to it. And it just looked from an eye test perspective, it just looks nicer. Um, And he's able to get wherever he wants on the floor. It's just, you know, I think Damian Lillard said it a few days ago. It's like, the most beautiful he has the most beautiful game we've probably ever seen so uh, for handles I'm for sure going with Kyrie Irving yeah he was my number one choice but I guess you got the first pick here to your point yeah with Kyrie you're seeing things on a nightly basis you've never seen before I had to I thought it was between Kyrie and Steph it really wasn't between them Kyrie has to be the answer but I was going with Steph just obviously having the ball on a string and being able to get wherever he wants I mean really before Kyrie Steph was doing things that we never seen, but now, I mean, Kyrie is arguably the best ball handler of all time. So you'll, you'll have that pick. So you have Kyrie. I have Steph. Um, the next category I had is IQ. Maybe we'll go snake format here. So I'll go, go two, and then, uh, you'll go to, um, IQ. There's a few guys I had on here, but at this stage of his career, I'm going to use LeBron on the IQ fact on the IQ choice. Um, just seeing what he's doing with the Lakers right now. They struggled for a little bit before the All-Star break, and now he's playing with an iffy roster, and they're winning some impressive games pretty handedly. So, I mean, that, that, that's just a small example we've seen throughout LeBron's career, what he can do in the postseason and how he can kind of just manipulate defenses with his IQ, which is almost unfair given his talent, but he's my pick there. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's that's a great selection. If I, you know, f- for the next guy, I'd probably go with Chris Paul. I think Chris Paul has always been a guy that's understood the, you know, the rule book so well. And, you know, despite his limitations, it always feels like he's two steps ahead of people. Um, you know, he always knows time scoring situation. You know, he's able to bait guys to get fouls. Um, he's always, you know, kind of where he needs to be defensively. So I just like how Chris Paul is able to bring all of that put it into a team environment and kind of elevate whatever team he goes to. So um, no matter what situation you place Chris Paul in, his IQ stands out and his team kind of reaps the benefits of it. Absolutely. I mean, just looking at what Chris Paul is doing in Phoenix, even looking at Chris Paul's career, he doesn't really play on bad teams, no matter where he is, that's a competitive team. All right. The next one we had here is first step. And if I have the first selection here, I'm going to have to take your guy, James Harden. Just his ability to lull the defender asleep with his through-the-leg moves and then just burst right by him. For a guy that doesn't look that quick to the eye, but clearly is, there was a moment last night in the game where I think he picked up the ball around half court and he just sprinted to the rim. And his speed is completely underrated, and he's he has the ability at any time to just completely get by his defender. So I'm going with Harden. I was looking if speed is a category on this. Speed is not, but if it was... Okay. If speed was, KPJ would have been in there for me. Yeah, so if I'm just going to go straight first step, um, I, I'm i going to go with John Morant. I think that John Morant just gets right past dudes. Um, he usually goes between the legs. I was only looking for speed because I was going to think about De'Aaron Fox, but I feel like if it's just limited to a first step, I like John Morant's ability to, even without you know the long-range shooting ability, guys aren't really pressing up on him. feels like he can slither by guys at any time and, get to where he wants to on the floor. So John Morant is just, you know, blessed with explosive athleticism. And I think it shows in his first step. 
Yeah, we can't go wrong with any of these picks. Some honorable mentions here for first step. I had Zion here for me, what we've seen recently. Um, All right, let's go to uh, just overall passing. You get the first pick in these next two categories now. Okay, for my passer, I'm going to go James Harden for me. I think he sees the floor. Um, There's a number of point guards I like, but James Harden gives me that size that I think is important as a playmaker because you can make the reads out of the pick and roll that the smaller guys tend to not see. I see that problem for like guys like Trey Young and even sometimes Chris Paul, um, who are great passers in their own right. But James Harden is kind of like a bigger guy that can kind of see over the top. And I think he's just a little bit different as a lefty too. It feels like he bends defenses in ways that most defenses aren't used to because most great passers in the NBA today are right-handed. So um, James Harden is a little bit different and, you know, he does it in a way that not many others do it because he, he can facilitate t- to score, but he can also score to facilitate. If that makes sense. He has you kind of at his mercy in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Knew you'd fit in Harden somewhere. Was he a consideration for first step? I mean, yeah, yesterday's game, I thought was a very, you know, good example. I, I, I think you, I think you kind of saw that yesterday, and that's why he came to mind so quickly. He was just kind of going between the legs, lulling them to sleep, and then just right at the end of the shot clock, he'd get right into a move and then just toss up a floater. It just looks so effortless. Yeah, it's unfair. For passing, I have Jokic. Talking about the size and the ability to just – he almost makes a mockery out of the defense on a nightly basis. Last night, I think he had the ball in the post in one hand, just playing around with the defenders, found Millsap right under the rim. And also just the uniqueness we're seeing from him. It's rare that you see a guy that's almost seven feet passing like that and can get the ball at the free throw line. And the defense is just, just has no clue where the ball is going. He's able to play around with his eyes. Um, he's, he can make every type of pass. So I would take Jokic there with my passer. And then let's, let's move on to layup package. There might be some repeats here, but you got the, yeah, first that's what I, I was just about it, to ask that is, are we, that's, the, that's what we should have discussed prior about avoiding repeats. Cause I was, that's what I was saying. I was looking at my list and I was like, damn, Kyrie is in like three or four of my categories. Yeah. So if we're going to stay away from that. Okay. Yeah. Let's stay away from it. Let's stay away from layup package. Uh, I mean, sorry, from repeats. Uh, yeah. yeah. Kyrie is probably the best layup package in the league. Um, if I have to stay away from Kyrie. Ooh, I don't want to use this guy here either. Cause I feel like he could be somewhere else. So now I got to think of this differently because yeah, this is tough. That's, I should have, I should have made this clear early because now, now we've got some tough decisions to make. Yeah. Layup package, man. There's a <laughs> lot of guys who have a nice layup package. Do, do we want to come back to the layup package? Uh, we can. Sure. All right. Let's skip layup package. We'll give ourselves a minute to brainstorm. So you'll, you'll go there first. I'm going to go back to the basket game. And I'm going to pick maybe a surprising player here. I'm going to go with Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi Leonard's post game has been steady throughout his career with his broad shoulders, able to just move the defender with his strength and kind of throw that uh, Sean Livingston patented line drive at the rim. Um, I would have liked to jokingly use Sean Livingston back in the day. Obviously, he's retired. But yeah, I would go with Kawhi Leonard here. Can always trust him to go in the post at the baseline and get you a bucket. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with Joel Embiid just because the brute force, and he combines that with the skill set, obviously. Um, it's a throwback. We don't see many guys like him in today's NBA. I think that's why he's able to dominate so easily, and um, he's able to make the reads now out of the low block that he didn't do as well earlier in his career. So I think that's a big reason why Philadelphia is playing the way they're playing right now, and I think Doc Rivers has kind of made it a point of emphasis to get Embiid the ball down low repeatedly and you know it's been you know we've seen it every time he's out there he's been dominating with his back to the basket and just feels unfair at times because there's not many guys in the NBA that are physically built to stop him so I think I'm gonna go with Embiid on that one that's funny because I actually so we can't repeat so I had him later you're up for the face-up game let's see who you take because I might have some thinking to do here I'm gonna go with KD I think KD. Damn it. <laughs> when KD goes to that mid post area, the short, you know, the high post, the elbow, wherever he catches it, honestly, he doesn't really even have to put the ball down anymore. Um, he kind of just moves that ball around, and a lot of guys kind of 
you know, mistakenly reach in and he's the master of kind of just swinging his arms up and getting shot off and getting fouled. And, you know, if you play perfect defense and still contest his shot, um, it's annoying. And I was talking about this earlier when I say he's the best bailout option in basketball, it's because you can throw it to him anywhere and he can just rise up and knock down shots at a really high clip. And a lot of people and a lot of teams actually just are trying to get away from the mid range as much as possible. But KD you know, he keeps on showing us why the mid range shouldn't die if you, you know, put in the time and, you know, the reps to really master that. So, you know, like you mentioned earlier with Kawhi Leonard and his back to the basket game, turning and knocking down shots, Katie's less physical. So I feel like he faces up more and gets those same shots off, especially with his height and his length. So I'll take KD on that one. Yeah. The KD face up games, uh, one of the most majestic things you can watch as a fan. I had KD as my first pick. I think in his prime, Carmelo Anthony would be the ideal choice here. But this actually speaks to the fact that prior to the injury, he was the MVP favorite. I'm going with Joel Embiid for my face-up game, which is funny because he went with the back-to-the-basket game. Is specifically this season, he's been able to develop that jab step. And at seven foot one, he's been almost automatic in the mid-range game. There's absolutely no defense for because you're afraid that he's going to get a step on you, in which case you have no chance. So he has been able to develop that mid-range game, the face-up game, where at his size, similar to Durant, doesn't necessarily have the quickness that you're afraid of, but is able to kind of use his strength and you're in fear of that strength and kind of get the shot he wants and has been knocking it down this year. So we've Embiid is fully off the board now for both of us. We'll move on to catch and shoot, Naode. I'll go first here. It was between two guys for me. And this might be... This might be a little bullish for me, but I'm going with Joe Harris just based on what I've seen from him this year shooting, I think over 50% from three, obviously he's known for his catch and shoot game. That's what he's kind of labeled as a catch and shoot three point guy. We've talked about this several times. He's actually able to succeed off the drill, but catch and shoot. He's been almost automatic this year. He's able to almost move his body while he's receiving the pass, move to the side and kind of get away from a defender. So Joe Harris, to me, continues to be one of the most underrated assets in this league. He's my catch-and-shoot pick. Yeah, that would have been my first first selection as well. I mean, he's shooting over 50%, and I mean, I guess a lot of that has to do with who he's around. But I think a guy who has cooled off a little bit this season but was definitely you know, among the best shooters last year, Duncan Robinson would be my selection, and he's able to do a lot of the same where he's not, you know, he's not in an ideal position when he catches the ball sometimes – not even parallel, uh, sometimes like parallel to the sideline, it feels like. And he's able to kind of like twist in midair and kind of throw up a shot. And, you know, he gets fouled a lot. And they have such creative actions in Miami that has him coming off of pin downs and handoffs and things like that. So they, it's a point of emphasis for the Heat to get him clean looks. And, you know, he's one of the best shooters in the league. And I think we got to, you know, we got to see it last year and we're getting to see it this year as well. He was hitting threes in the finals last year that I, I've at, I, thought at the time that they were awful takes, but he was drilling them to your point, falling to the side. Um, all right. You can start with uh, the off the dribble three. Now building your player. It's a tough choice. Well, I, th- I think there's two guys, but the- I think there's one guy who stands out. I have three I'm gonna guys. Go all right. I'm going to go with Steph. Okay. Um, I don't think I have to really explain it. He's just the greatest shooter of all time. And, and a lot of that is because he's able to kind of, make these breathtaking shots off the dribble that we weren't accustomed to ever before he got to the league, right? Most guys were catching it, kind of getting their feet set and taking, you know, high percentage looks. We weren't seeing guys doing multi-dribble isolations, taking tough contested shots. And I think his, his ability to get the shot off so quickly, his release time is what makes it all possible. So I'm gonna go with Steph on that one. All right. I assume the other guy you were considering was Lillard. Because I have Lillard as my pick. I had one other guy, but yeah, Lillard, we saw it. Um, prime example of it two nights ago against New Orleans. Similar to Steph, can get a shot off wherever, whenever he wants. He's the obvious choice there. The other guy I was considering was Zach Levine, specifically this season. Zach Levine, just overall, if you look at Zach Levine's numbers, it, it's hard to believe how efficient he's been, especially when he's asked to carry such a big load. So he was my honorable mention there. Moving on a mid-range game, I'll go first here. It's between two main guys for me that we haven't selected yet, but I'm going to go with Devin Booker in this spot. He's been able to excel in the mid-range game throughout his career. You see late in games, when he gets hot in the mid-range game, completely unstoppable. 
Um, and he's able to really hit his shot from any area on the floor. So I'd go with Booker here. I'm curious to see who you have. Yeah, there's a there's a number of guys. Uh, some of them we've already used, like Kyrie and KD. So I'm going to try to switch it up, Yeah. Uh, put in somebody different. I'm going to go with Chris Middleton. I think Chris Middleton is one of the most efficient shooters from all three levels in the league, and he's elite in the mid-range. Um, like I said, we already took Kyrie off the board, KD, Chris Paul. Um, I think for an honorable mention, for me, it was between these two guys. It was KD. I mean, sorry, it was uh, Chris Middleton or CJ McCollum. I love CJ McCollum's mid-range game as well. Um, but Chris Middleton, just a little bit bigger, a little bit taller. I think he shoots it at a little bit better of a clip. So I'm going to go with Chris Middleton. That's a good pick. And so is CJ McCollum, who's extended his range a little bit this year, which is nice to see. Maybe in a few years I could sprinkle in Brandon Ingram, but it's way, way too early for that. Um, all right, so we'll go to post D and perimeter D to wrap this up. Who's your post defender node? So is this is this encompassing like rim protection and everything in between? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go with Rudy Gobert. I just think yeah. his impact is just undeniable when it comes to protecting the basket and you know making guys uncomfortable. He alters shots. Some guys don't even take shots. Um, and it also allows, you know, his teammates in Utah to get comfortable pressing up on the perimeter, kind of taking away three-point shots, closing out, you know, even leaving their feet at times, just knowing that they have that safety net behind them to, you know, protect anything that comes in the interior. So I like Rudy Gobert there. But, you know, I could understand if somebody went with somebody with a bigger frame because Rudy Gobert has had a little bit of trouble with Embiid and Jokic. But, I mean, who doesn't? I'm going to try and get creative here. I know that, I mean, post defending in general is, is few and far between now, just the way the game is played. We haven't used this guy yet. I was going to go with Giannis as my post defender or just rim protector in general. Obviously we kind of view him as more of a perimeter defender, but he has the complete ability to be a force down there. Uh, obviously a very versatile defender and has the height and the wingspan to get it done. So I would take Giannis here as my post defender. So we've got two more categories, building some pretty solid players. Um, we have perimeter D, and then we'll get back to layup package, which is required some brainstorming. For perimeter D, I'm going with Drew Holiday. That's my selection there. Obviously, just watching him and the difference he can make and how, how frustrating of a night it could be for certain guys going against him. And also just a lot of what you hear from the players who are often the best source on this. All of them, or not all of them, but a lot of them view him as the best defender perimeter-wise in the league, if not the best defender, Damian Lillard was was quoted saying that he thought Drew Holiday was simply the best defender in the league. Um, and just watching him, as I mentioned, I would go with Drew Holiday as my perimeter defender. Yeah, uh, that's a great pick, obviously. And he's had, you know, he's been in the league for a while, so he's been able to make his stamp, and a lot of guys recognize him as the best perimeter defender in basketball. Uh, I'm going to go with a guy that's been a little less, you know, in the league for a little bit less time, but he's made an impact and. Uh, I think most, you know, true NBA fans have seen him, and that's Lou Dort. I think Lou Dort in a in, a, in a league, in a league that's full of you know offensive talent, and all the rules are kind of conducive to offensive success. You know, not many rules now favor defenders anymore, but Lou Dort, what you can all you can ask for is a guy that's relentless, and I feel like that's what Lou Dort is. He fights through picks. He does, you know, he never gets screened off. It feels like he's always trying to get a you know a good contest. You know, trying to get guys uncomfortable. Um, he's got quick feet and a sturdy frame. So he's kind of built like your prototypical NBA defender in today's NBA. And I, I guess me being a Rockets fan, I got to see, you know, yeah. he, he missed game one, but six games of Lou Dort just trying to frustrate James Harden as best as he could. And honestly, he did as good as a job as I've seen anybody do on James Harden for an extended period of time. Yeah. Harden got his revenge though, blocking the three at the end of the game. I, I'm a big dork at my fantasy basketball team name is Dort for three. Just coming off that game seven where I was loving what he was doing. I would have loved to watch him hit that three, even though it probably would have upset you tremendously. All right, let's, let's finish up with the layoff package. You can go first here. Um, this is a tough call, but yeah, let's see who you got. I'm going to switch it up here. Um, even though this guy has suffered some injuries, I've always felt like the wow factor is my favorite part of the layup packages. And even though his percentages might not be, like what they used to be. I'm going to go with John Wall. I've always felt like he's one of the more creative guys finishing at the hoop. I remember those days when he'd hit guys with 360s and things like that. Um, 
I feel like a lot of the best under the rim finishers uh, were from the previous generation, like guys yeah. like Tony Parker and like Monte Ellis and things like that. So um, feels like we've lost some of those guys. Um, like we've said, Kyrie Irving kind of stands out in this category. Um, I didn't want to use Steph here either because he has an array of finishes that are impressive. So I'm going to go with John Wall, a guy who doesn't have that juice that he used to, but you know, he still gets up and does some creative things from time to time. I like the John Wall pick. Mine's going to come off a bit more boring. That just reminds me of, as you mentioned, yeah, watching guys years and years ago going to Knicks games and watching Stefan Marbury fearlessly drive to the rim and just have these acrobatic finishes. My pick is not, is not as fun. I was going to utilize Luca here with his ability to finish at the rim. Although to your point, not to criticize my own pick because clearly Luca can get his, his shot off at the rim whenever he needs to can hesitate, can fool defenders with a pump fake, but we're more, more so talking about being unique at the rim, which he is, but yeah, I, I do enjoy obviously more so the guys hanging in the air. So I'm going with Luca. Some guys I thought of, it's not really a layup package for Zion because it's really only one type of layup, which is just hang in the air until the defender is lower than you. But if Zion can develop the right hand and develop, if he can develop his layup package overall, it'll make him even more unstoppable. Just given the fact that he could stay up there for so much longer. Um, but yeah, overall, it looks like we built some solid players here. I wonder if there's any snubs on this list. I think Bradley Beal might be a snub with the mid-range game. Um, but yeah, he should have definitely been mentioned as the honorable mention. I like, um, and he's not in the league now, but if we had asked this question a few years ago when we were trying to save certain guys for certain spots, I think Isaiah Thomas in the layup package would have been yeah. interesting because he was always able to get in the lane and get creative at just you know, a generous listing of five, nine. So he definitely had some of the more creative finishes I saw, you know, in recent memory. Now, yeah, the, sh the shorter the player, the more likely they are to be a talented or an enjoyable view as far as layup packages come. But now thank you for coming on again. This was fun. Some good NBA content. I enjoyed building our perfect players and hopefully, uh, hopefully next time you come on the Rockets have won. Cause I don't think they've won since the first time you came on here. Honestly, I don't know if I want us to win. I want us to keep go keep going down the standings, increase the likelihood of our keep of us keeping our pick. But yeah, just for all the Rockets fans and their sanity, maybe one win. You know, yeah. One Let's win, not set them. records in the wrong way. Thanks yeah, again, exactly. though, Nayo. I appreciate it. Thank you.